everyone. Me again, Laszlo Montgomery. Welcome back to the Tea History Podcast, Part 7 today. Lu Yu, Lu Tong, and the Tang Dynasty are behind us now, and tea has hit the big time all over China. In this Part 7 episode, we'll continue looking at the history of tea in China after Lu Yu departed us in his earthly form in the year 804. In the history of tea, as it pertains to Japan, that is, that was a banner year. 804 not only marks the passing of China's great tea sage, two of the more famous and important people in Japanese tea history, Kukai and Saichou, both Buddhist monks, returned to Japan from China with tea seeds and knowledge of tea cultivation and tea rituals and ceremonies. We mentioned Saichou last episode, but Kukai, who didn't get a mention, was no less important. Besides all he did for Buddhism, legend has it that Kukai was also given credit for inventing katakana. That's pretty big. The Japanese emperor at the time, Emperor Saga, quite the Sinophile according to the history books, was astounded by this new China beverage and its potential. He'll go down in Japanese tea history as the first Japanese emperor to be served tea. From past CHP episodes, we know the Tang Dynasty didn't last forever and started to break down in the 9th century, finally going down for the count in 907 after a brilliant 289-year run. From the Chama Dao, going back to the 7th century, coupled with all kinds of advances in tea processing and presentation, tea had evolved into a blockbuster hit with China's neighbors to the north, West, and especially Southwest, that's one of the great legacies of tea in the Tang. It was a very big regional trading item. In the 9th and 10th centuries, sailing on the high seas was still only for the most adventurous. Among these were some fearless Arab traders engaged in China trade, sailing small cargo vessels there from the Near East. And some of you may recall the story of the shipwreck discovered in 1998. Indonesian fishermen discovered the wreck of a 50-foot-long Arab dhow called the Jewel of Muscat off Beilitong Island. This is an island about halfway between Borneo and Sumatra. The wreck was dated to about 830 CE, Wenzong Emperor's time. The wreck contained quite a large collection of Tang Dynasty artifacts. It was called the Tang Treasure... In one single shipwreck, they found gold, silver, and ceramic ware from Changsha, the Ding Kilns, and Yue ware. One of the bowls was dated 826 CE. If you're ever in Singapore, this is all on display there at the Maritime Experiential Museum. Ding ware, or Ding Tzu, came from Dingzhou in Hebei, halfway between Baoding and Shijiazhuang. I think Matt Sheehan used to live there. Dingware was another very popular and in-demand ceramic ware during the Tang, Song, and Yuan periods. Originally, it was kind of a, a knockoff of the popular white Xingware from around Xingtai, also in Hebei. Not too far, in fact, from where my buddy uh, Pang Zai lives, Mr. Liu Shichao. There was a very bloody and gory bridge in between the end of the Tang and the beginning of the Song dynasty. This period lasted from 907 to 960. 53 years of battles and disunity before Zhao Kuangyin, the last general standing, founded the Song with the capital at Kaifeng, ancient Henan province. 
Kaifeng was called Bian back then. It was about one century since Lu Yu had died when Zhao Kuangyin, a.k.a. Song Taizu, sat on the throne in Kaifeng, and he ushered in a golden age that many argue was even more golden than the preceding Tang Dynasty. As far as tea goes, it certainly was. I know things didn't move as fast back then as they do now, but still, a lot could happen in a century, especially in a place like China. As far as tea was concerned, with so many new tea artisans getting into the game, a lot of progress had been made, and a lot of new teas began hitting the market. In the song, Brick Tea wasn't so cool anymore. Bricks weren't so cool, but the whole idea of compressed tea cakes were. The Song-era tea cakes would be molded and embossed with all kinds of decorative lucky symbols or Chinese characters. And of course, they came wrapped in all these great woodblock printed papers. And they used to do this thing as a final touch. They'd, they'd scent these beautiful tea cakes with camphor wood. It wasn't enough to just make something worthy to be an imperial tribute tea. The way the tea was packaged was also important. So like today's marketers, these tea masters would come up with all kinds of ways to perform that final touch, that final bit of elegance and refinement that screamed out that this tea was special. Even today, the packaging for some of these higher-end gift teas is really something else. So valuable were these compressed tea cakes that they actually became a de facto secondary currency. Besides the advances in these new molded and elegant tea cakes, perhaps one of the most defining aspects of Song tea history involved the introduction and popularity of what in Mandarin we call mocha and in Japanese matcha. This is powdered tea, leaves that have been dried, processed, and then ground down into a powder. This is how they did it in the song. The tea, in its powdered form, was mixed with the water so that when you drank the tea, you consumed both the water and the leaves. It's totally different from steeping the leaves in your teacup or teapot. This is where the whisk took center stage in tea preparation. I'm sure most of you are familiar with this process, especially if you know about Japanese cha-do or have seen a Japanese cha-no-yu tea ceremony. It's funny. It started in China, probably at the Song Court, or at least in Kaifeng. Well, maybe down in the south. Who knows? But when this style of preparing and drinking powdered tea got to Japan, they really took to it. They took to it so much that, even to this day, matcha or tencha is still very much alive and well and remains an integral part of the cha no yu. After the song, mocha got left in the dust and the Chinese went on to bigger and better things. This method of whisking the tea into a froth was called dian cha. It was much more difficult than it looked. It wasn't like pouring water on an instant oatmeal. There was a whole art to it. So let's look at some of the characters like we did last time. In this episode, let's take a look at Tsai Xiang, and we'll revisit our old friend Emperor Huizong. Some of you might remember that four-part China History podcast series that covered this emperor's extraordinary life. One of the ways tea was so important was as a medium for all the northern Song artsy-fartsy types, 
to discuss philosophy, create poetry, paintings, and ceramics. The ceremony, the rituals, and the meanings behind every move became so elegant and so stylized in the time of the Song. We'll look at Song teaware that was rather new and innovative compared to what was considered stylish in the Tang. Song ceramics are quite regular items up for auction at all the great houses, Sotheby's, Lempert's, Christie's, and others. These Song vases and teaware fetch millions. Why is that? It was because craftsmen during the Song took ceramics to new heights, driven by the importance of tea and what it meant to the Chinese people from the 10th to the 12th centuries. More of that later. Especially after Lu Yu, who made quite a fuss about the importance of the teaware you used, the brilliant craftsmen operating out of all the greatest kilns of the day took everything great that the Tang started and brought it to a new level, a new level of sophistication in design, materials, and firing. As far as tea becoming central to formal and everyday Chinese etiquette, the Song Dynasty is when it went to even greater heights. Although it may have started to become widespread during the Tang, by the Song, normal rules of hospitality dictated, you serve your guests tea. And on certain holidays and other auspicious days, perhaps an ancestor's birthday, you served tea and even offered it up to your dearly departed. With tea now firmly inserted into the daily picture, it created an additional layer of li mo, or etiquette, to go with all of the other Chinese cultural niceties that had accumulated since Zhou Gong's time. Let's look at Tsai Xiang first. He was the Lu Yu of his day. I guess you could call him the Wang Xijer of his day also. Y'all remember Wang Xijer, China History Podcast, episode 96? So great was this man's calligraphy that the Taizong Emperor, Li Shermin, requested a copy of Wang Xijer's most famous work, the Lan Ting Ji Xu, be buried with him in his tomb. Tsai Xiang was, with Tsai Jing of Huizong's time, one of the greatest calligraphers of his age, and some say the whole Song dynasty. He lived from 1012 to 1067, dying a year after the Battle of Hastings, to give you a little time stamp. The other three most famous Song calligraphers, always mentioned in the same breath with Tsai Xiang, were Su Shi, Huang Tingjian, and Mi Fu. When talking about Song calligraphy, plenty of Chinese can rattle off the names Su, Huang, Mi, Tsai. Tsai Xiang came from present-day Putian in between Quanzhou and Fuzhou in one of the world's true tea paradises, Fujian province. He served as an official during the time of the Renzong Emperor. This was also the time of Ouyang Xiao, who we featured in episode CHP 71. Tsai Xiang is most famous for his calligraphy and his work called the Cha Lu, the Record of Tea. This, along with the Cha Jing, the classic of tea, are among the most important of all the many tea treatises. The Cha Lu is divided up into two parts. Like the Cha Jing, which Tsai Xiang freshened up a little, it adds more narrative to the tools and ways to prepare tea. One thing he was adamant about was to stop impregnating the smell of the tea cakes with this camphor wood. He was a purist, like Lu Yu, when it came to adding stuff to the tea leaves. Both were very strong advocates for drinking tea by itself, without the distractions of additives or scented packaging. 
The whole fashion of using a bamboo whisk to whip the tea into a froth was an activity that was very popular during the salad days of the Song. I'd go so far as to say that was their signature contribution to Chinese tea culture. The swells of the day in all the great cities famous for high concentrations of literati used to hold these cha contests. They were also called Mingzhan, or Tea Wars. Ming being the name chosen for tea instead of cha, and a jan is a battle. To cha translates loosely to have a tea struggle or a tea fight. On a simple level, it was sort of like an Iron Chef kind of a contest to see who could prepare the best tea. One would face off against their various opponents, and you'd put then more chop powder in that cup. Then, with a whisk in one hand and a pot of boiled water or ewer in the other, you'd start mixing it up, getting it just right, and then you present your bowl of tea to the judge of the contest. Tea aficionados and everyone in Fujian province might be cringing right now at my completely stripped-down description of Song Docha tea contests. Actually, the whole matter was slightly more complicated. In these Docha events, it wasn't enough just to offer up a tasty drink. The raw material was usually a very high-end tea cake. The contenders would grind their respective tea cakes into a powder using the tea utensils of the day, and then the ground tea powder was placed at the bottom of the tea bowl, then using a ewer, a vessel, to pour water. With one hand they poured, and with the other hand they whisked. When done upright and whisked perfectly, the froth on the tea was white or greenish white. The judge would then check the whisk and tea utensils for any traces of water left on them. And these amateurs and masters who contended all had their own stylized ways to enhance the whole tea-making experience. And I'm sure when you had all these witty minds in one room together, the poetry, repartee, and wit was probably flying thick and fast. And if you're going to whip that tea up into a nice froth of white or greenish-white color, nothing is going to look better than a lustrous, black color tea bowl to complement the tea. That white against black really popped. And to facilitate this, one of the calling cards of the Song Dynasty was born. And this was their black color jianware. It came from Jianyang in Fujian province. Jianware wasn't all black. Little touches of color would be added that inspired poems and made these tea bowls coveted and most sought after by collectors during the Song and a thousand years later. The most prized decorations were called names like Tuhao Jan or Hare's Fur or Dai Mao Jan or Tortoise Shell. Zhe Guban was, was called Partridge Feathers. Another popular design was Yodi or Oil Droplets. In the Song Dynasty, teaware went from being a utilitarian object to something collectors were willing to pay a lot of money for. By the way, the reason why the Tuhao Jan, or Hare's Fur design, was considered the best was because Emperor Huizong himself said so in his treaties that we're going to talk about uh, next episode. If the Jianware was inscribed on the bottom with the words Gong Yu, then that meant the piece was tribute wear and not your average run-of-the-mill stuff. The emperor didn't just get the best tea, he also got the best tea wear.
And just because you couldn't afford the finest jianware didn't mean you were excluded from enjoying this favorite Song Dynasty pastime. This dolcha custom was popular with the masses as well as the swells. And when this jianware made it across the East China Sea and into Japan, it created a sensation. In fact, so much so that whenever I see any black-colored teaware, I instantly associate it more with Japan than I do China. But it all started in the kilns of Jianyang in Tea Heaven, Fujian Province. Some would argue this, but the ceramics from the Song period are the finest and most prized of everything China has ever put out there. We discussed Yueware, Xingware, Dingware, and Jianware. There was also another icon of Song ceramics, Qingbai porcelain. Song Qingbai porcelain. That was good stuff. It was almost translucent, but much less fragile than it looked. The color was a white or greenish white, as the name Qingbai suggests. Qing is green and Bai is white. Qingbai, Qingbai in the Song was the prelude to the Ming Dynasty blue on white and the Qing Guangcai that used multiple colors on a white ceramic canvas. There were many tea stories from the Song about these Docha events. Tai Xiang once faced off against the noted literatus and calligrapher Su Xunyuan. In this story, Tai Xiang chose the better tea, but Su Xunyuan brewed his tea with the more superior Juli water. Tai Xiang used an inferior but still top drawer Hui Quan spring water. And as the story goes, Tai Xiang lost the contest. Water, the mother of tea, could make or break your tea experience. There was a newcomer in town during the Song Dynasty. This was when Fujian province started wearing its crown as the producer of the greatest teas. Tea culture in Fujian got itself noticed during the Song. They originated the whole Docha custom that caught on in all the other provinces. Even Emperor Huizong, he loved to participate in these contests. This little bit of Cha Wenhua tea culture, it all started in Fujian. In the time of the Northern Song, people began to notice the tea masters in Fujian did something special with their tea leaves. Tea bushes in Fujian aren't any different than the tea bushes in Sichuan. The terroir was different, of course, but in Fujian, they did things different. The tea-growing masters in Fujian are going to create a whole new category of tea called Wulong that is going to take the country by storm and become the preferred kind of tea of artists, literary types, and elites all over. Tea had gotten big enough in Song, China, where the government began to take an even more active role in the trade. The Cha Ma Gu Dao, we discussed in previous episodes, the ancient tea horse road. But we saw how this trade route did so much to bring tea, Buddhism, and some elements of Chinese culture to the Tibetans and others beyond China's far west borders. But it was carried out on a very small scale, and though the job got done, it was very high cost, dangerous, and logistically inefficient. The geopolitical dynamic during the Song Dynasty called for a little more aggressive action by the government with regard to the tea horse trade. Do you remember from previous episodes, CHP 28 on the Northern Song Dynasty and the four-part series on Emperor Huizong, 
One of the major headaches of the Song emperors, from Zhao Kuangyin, the founder, all the way to Huizong, was that they all had to deal with a lot of aggressive and murderous barbarians surrounding them on all three sides. We remember that the Song government used old ways to humor the hordes surrounding them. They bought them off, married their daughters off to chieftains and khans, paid massive tribute, played one tribe off against the other, and used all kinds of ways going back to the Han emperors to try and keep everyone at bay. They were able to do this to some extent through trade and diplomacy. But in order to show they meant business, the Song military had to constantly be on alert and ready to carry out a show of force whenever these Tanguts, Jurchens, Uyghurs, Kitan, and Mongols too started getting designs on China. All of them were constantly probing China's sedentary soft spots, looking for some sort of advantage. The Song government badly needed these people of the steppes because of the demand for horses. During the Song, the need was greater than ever before in China's history. Foot soldiers were at a terrible disadvantage against mounted warriors. The government early on in the reign of the Zhenzong Emperor, 997 to 1022, began to lay the groundwork for government intervention in the tea for horses trade. And even though this brick tea was made with the least desirable tea leaves and contained stems and was terribly bitter compared to the good stuff, the demand for this tea, bitter or not, from the Tibetans and other border peoples, was no less than the Song military's insatiable demand for their horses. That was a fair trade, I think. Tea for horses. Both sides had something the other wanted. Over time, they had established market prices for everything. About 130 pounds of brick tea, 59 kilos, got you one horse. This clean and honest business was quite a contrast with eight centuries later when the British traders were engaged in the tea business. Most of the tea in Sichuan and Yunnan ended up being processed into this brick tea and shipped from Ya'an near Chengdu westward to Lhasa. But no matter how much tea they could pick, process, package, and transport to the Tibetans and others to the west, it wasn't enough. The Song needed hundreds of thousands of horses. Five million pounds of tea, if they had that much production, at 130 pounds per equine specimen, yielded only 38,461.54 horses. So the people up in Mongolia, Manchuria, Qinghai, they didn't have this problem. That's why they couldn't be beat. The Song military was able to subdue the Tanguts of the western Xia for a while. But amongst the northern Song emperors, there was no Han Wu Di or Tang Tai Zong, no great warrior emperor to conquer these troublesome people to the north and to the west. But this trade in tea for horses at least kept the Song dynasty in the game. They could never get enough horses out of the Tibetans. And their enemies certainly weren't going to trade horses. You don't see the U.S. military selling F-22 raptors to their enemies. Horses were the advanced weaponry of their day, so why should the Jurchens sell them to their rival to the south? But what the Song government was able to procure certainly aided in the preservation of the dynasty. I'm telling you, the Song horse purchasing department really cleaned the Tibetans out. Initially set up in 1007 under Zhenzong and institutionalized under Shenzong in 1074, 
the Tea and Horse Agency, based in Sichuan, was the Song office tasked to fight this losing battle. The reforms surrounding this office and how it was staffed and operated was one of the reforms championed by Wang Anshu. Remember him? We mentioned Wang Anshu before. He was the great reformer during the Song. Six government-run horse markets were created and operated efficiently in the southwest of Sichuan to deal with their Tibetan counterparts. So tea, innocently enough, because people who came in touch with it loved it so much, continued to play a role in not only China's daily social life, but because of export demand, it brought income into the royal coffers that allowed the brilliant lights of the Song Dynasty to keep burning bright. I think this is as good a spot as any to wind things down and call it a night. We'll keep this going next time with more Song Dynasty antics. Didn't get to the Yuan this time. Not that there was a whole hell of a lot to say. But next time we'll get to that as well as all the profound changes that will happen in the world of tea during the early Ming Dynasty. Patreon.com, my friends. That's where you can support me and this humble effort of mine. Join my hundreds of other CHP superfans, admirers, and... Well, everyone who feels sorry for me, and donate to your heart's content. Patreon.com slash China History Podcast. We're related, don't worry. So please consider. Okay, that's all I got for you this time. Laszlo Montgomery here, signing off from the town they call the city of Los Angeles. Come back next time, you hear, for another full-flavored episode of the Tea History Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>